Hi, everybody, and welcome to Still to be Determined. Our regular listeners are, of course, accustomed to this being the follow-up podcast to Undecided with Matt Farrell, where the aforementioned Matt Farrell, yes, that (laughs) Matt Farrell, talks about sustainability and its impact on our lives. And he does that with his co-host, his older brother, Sean. Hey, that's me. (laughs) Sup? (laughs) Sup? But this week, we're doing something a little different. We did it last week, and we're doing it again this week. This week, we're going to be sharing Matt's conversation with some other podcasters regarding energy and climate, and they're going to be discussing that shortly. And then next week, we will be returning to conversations around Matt's most recent video, why he went geothermal with his new home. While usually we share comments and discuss Matt's most recent video, Today, we're going to be sharing Matt's conversation with the hosts of Energy Versus Climate. The Energy Versus Climate podcast is hosted by David Keith, Sarah Hastings-Simon, and Ed Whittingham, and they talk about details of climate and energy policy. Matt's conversation with them covered a wide range of topics, but it tended to focus on what can individuals do to be more sustainable in their home. Before we get into that, though, I wanted to share a comment from our most recent episode, which caught my eye. Matt, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. As I mentioned last week, there was a lot of conversation in the comments around topics that people would be interested in us discussing and interested in you doing videos on. Mm -hmm. Top of the list was AI. And I want to share this comment from Barbara, (laughs) who wrote, AI is very interesting. I can see a use for my personal research, but finding basic use info, not the hype and infomercial stuff, which I'm not interested in, is not that simple. For me, Google is like a huge library with no card catalog and no easy way to find a focus for my information gathering on a subject that I'm interested in pursuing. I wouldn't be outputting a video, just getting better understandings. GPT-4 is what I'm aiming at but it's only up to November, 2021. It took me Mm -hmm. a while to just understand the difference between GPT four and GPT chat as I was wading through the make a pile of money videos that have hit the internet, but what (laughs) angle Matt could take, I'm not sure. I would think Matt and Sean would probably find it useful in shortening hours of research on any area that we normally research and creating images and graphs, et cetera. I know what I think about this. Yeah. Like general thread. What are your thoughts about it? It's funny that Barbara brought, brought up shorting research. I'm already using AI to do exactly that. And it's been a game changer. And just to kind of call out chat GPT for actually just released a new feature that if you're a paid subscriber, you can actually access Google search as part of it now. So it's no longer limited to 2021 or 2022 before you can get up to the minute information and ask for citations to double check to make sure what it's giving you is accurate. <laughs> but I've been using it a lot to help find research around different topics for like, I'm, I'm starting to dive into like, let's say a fusion research video. And it's like, I need to figure out what's going on with lattice confinement fusion. And I can ask it questions for, can you kind of break this part of lattice confinement down for me to in a simpler way? Or can you help find me uh, recent breakthroughs or research around a certain aspect of this? And it will find it. It's like having a little mini librarian. <laughs> that's doing all the research for you. And mm-hmm. because it's natural language, it works way better than Google search, like way better. It's finding me things that would have taken me hours to find. And it's finding it in little, like 60 seconds, 90 seconds. So it's really shortened how much time it takes to research. And then the other way I'm using it is to also help me simplify my own writing. So you can take a, you write a paragraph it's like, mm, that's not quite feeling right. It's feeling a little too complicated. You can take that paragraph, put it in chat GPT and say, can you help me simplify this paragraph and write it at a ninth grade reading level? And it will rewrite your writing. And so it acts like a little mini editor for you. You could say, can you help get rid of some of the passive voice? And it will remove passive voice. It's really kind of incredible as a tool for a writer. And I'm curious, Sean, if you've ever thought about using it to like look at your own writing because you are a writer, you write novels. It's like, have you thought about using AI to help you? Here's where it gets, here's the other side of the coin. In the writing (laughs) community, in the fiction community, there's a lot of fear around what AI could do to the profession of trying to be a writer. And I am a writer. I have written and sold. Now I'm 
on the verge of my third novel coming out uh, in just a few days, as a matter of fact. In fact, by the time this video will release, the my newest book will be on the market. And plug, plug, that's The Sinister Secrets of Singe, which is a middle grade adventure book. I've written adult novels. I've written picture books. I've written now this middle grade book, which is the first in a series. And there is concern in the fiction writing community that if publishers could use an AI to generate stories, novels, picture book text, whatever, maybe even picture, picture book illustrations, without actually having to have an artist or a writer involved, publishers would do that. So our fear is what happens when and if the market is willing to consume stuff that does not in fact actually involve a human creating it and our ability to sell our work disappears. So there's a lot of fear in that. And that's on the generation side. But I do see the use case of research being a really remarkable tool. I have a book that I've been working on, which is set in the early 20th century during World War One, And I did tons and tons of, of reading and research around life and warfare at that time and did hundreds of hours of reading and research that was fruitless. It was poring over books and finding, you know, reading things that were of general interest to me. And it was an interesting ex experience in consuming some of that, but a lot of it is treading water instead of moving forward. And yeah. so the research aspect of this for me, I do see a use case yep. where I'm like, okay, for me to be able to say like, can you describe these aspects of what it was like for a British soldier in world war one and to be able to have that brought to me as opposed to having to wade through all the different layers that I went through. And then using that as a jumping off point to then go into those books that I did read and finding, you know, going deeper into already published information from, from those book sources and magazine sources, I think would be tremendous and would be a time saver. But there is the creative aspect that is a little unnerving and a little, yeah, yeah there's a little bit of which side of the sword are we getting? It's, it seems like it's going to cut both ways. So I think there's plenty of material in AI for recurring videos. I mean, this is something mm -hmm. I feel like Matt, you and I are going to revisit in conversation multiple times for the foreseeable future, potentially yes. until yeah. eventually somebody generates an AI that will replace still to be determined. <laughs> Thank you so much, Barbara, for your comment. It really is thought provoking and it is, as you point out, it is a tool and it's a question of what do people use that tool for? And so I do think it'll be an interesting topic for us to visit again and again. Now on to today's video, which of course, as I mentioned before, is Matt's discussion with the hosts of Energy versus Climate. And as we mentioned before, Energy versus Climate has three hosts, David Keith, Sarah Hastings Simon, and Ed Whittingham. And they go into the details of climate and energy policy. Unfortunately, David wasn't able to join the conversation, but Matt had a conversation with Sarah and Ed. Sarah is a physicist and a professor at the University of Calgary and director of the Master of Science in Sustainable Energy Development. Ed is the head of the Pembina Institute, helping to develop and finance clean energy projects and a co-founder of the Academy for Sustainable Innovation in Canada. They are basically experts in energy transition. And the conversation was a fun one, so please enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special joint episode of the Energy versus Climate and the Still To Be Determined podcast. My name is Ed Whittingham, and I'm joined by two amazing people. One is my Energy versus Climate co-host, Sarah Hastings-Simon, and the other is Matt Farrell of both Undecided with Matt Farrell and the Still To Be Determined podcast. Matt and Sarah, how are you both doing today? I'm doing great. How about you, Sarah? Yeah, doing good. Well, why this joint episode, dear viewer, listener, you might ask? Well, Holly Brown with Matt's team reached out to us and said, hey, would you like to plug each other's podcasts? Um, and given that Matt and his brother, Sean Farrell, discuss everything from electric vehicles to renewable energy to smart technologies and how they impact our lives on Still to be Determined, 
topics that, of course, we uh, here at Energy versus Climate all like, we thought, why not get Matt on the line and jointly record something? And that's exactly what we're doing today. And how we're going to do it is first chatting with Matt about his undecided still TBD projects, after which we'll pass the interviewer mic to Matt. (laughs) We'll do the same about energy versus climate. And after that, the three of us, we're just going to chit chat about homes, mobility, climate tech, and anything else that springs to mind. That's that's about it for a game plan. So I don't know. Matt, Sarah, should we just jump right into it? Let's, Let's jump in. Awesome. Okay. So Matt, we put you on the interviewee couch first. So <laughs> give us your backstory and tell us, like, how did you get interested in clean energy and technology and this whole topic of how, you know, technology affects our lives? Yeah. My background's kind of weird and kind of checkered, but like I worked for a couple of decades in the technology space as a user experience and user interface designer. And after doing that for 20 years, I was looking for a change and I was like, I could get a new job and just be doing the same thing at a different place. And I've been very passionate about sustainability and climate. I'm concerned about climate change. And so I wanted to make a change and do something different that I thought could potentially kind of like help others that are out there. And I thought, I know how to edit videos. I know how to, I have a degree in communications. Why am I not doing something on YouTube? So I decided to kind of jump into YouTube and start telling stories around what I was learning, what I was doing in my own life, getting to talk to people that work in different industries and like batteries, energy storage, uh, solar panels, all that kind of stuff and started sharing what I was learning on Undecided. And it's just kind of, it kind of took on a life of its own. I did not expect it to turn into what it is today. But it's been a really fun journey, kind of like taking my different passions around technology and climate change and kind of combining those two things into topics I talk about on Undecided. And then also, of course, of course, still to be determined with my brother, which is like a follow-up conversation based on what happens on the YouTube channel, because I have a really cool community that con- constantly is reaching out to me and giving me feedback and telling me, why don't you look into this topic? Look into that topic. What about this? And so we kind of follow up on those conversations on the podcast. Yeah, I love, and and I was notionally aware of follow-up podcasts, but it really hit home when I did listen to Still to be Determined, and I realized that it was riffing off what you'd done on Undecided. Yeah. And I love the yeah. fact that you came to it at you know, sort of simple premise, I know how to vi- edit videos, and I've got a communications <laughs> degree. Two things, by the way, that Sarah and I do not have and cannot do. <laughs> we need like total hand-holding with our wonderful producer. I have like an anti-communications degree, Ed. I think that's if you have a degree in physics. (laughs) (laughs) Because you have not to communicate with people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. We joke. It's like, hey, you know, we do something, you know, it's an acquired taste. Just don't have us try to communicate with real people. You know, we could never do that. (laughs) Um, So undecided. First, what specifically are you undecided about? And, uh, you know, how how has undecided evolved over time? Well, there's a kind of a joke behind the name Undecided, which was I was trying to come up with a name for the channel and my wife just said, oh, just call it Undecided. You can't make up your mind what you're going to call it. So that's kind of where it sprang from. But the actual meaning behind it for me was uh, I'm very curious. I'm a very curious person. I like to learn and see new things. And it's like when I went into college, my freshman year, I hadn't picked a major. And when you hadn't picked a major, it was like you were undeclared. But like all the freshmen would say, what's your what's your major? And people would just say, oh, I'm undecided. So for me, that's kind of the meaning behind it of me just having curiosity, wanting to learn, keep an open mind, see what's out there. Um, So that's kind of the meaning behind the channel. And the channel's kind of evolved over time based on where my interests are taking me and where the viewers' interests are kind of leading me because it's a conversation between me and the viewers. So that's kind of like how it's evolved over time. Nice. And and given you cover like a huge range of topics, like from (laughs) EVs to renewables, uh, yeah. Tell us like a little bit on the on the content selection process. How do you decide what to cover, and then what kind of research are you doing in advance to then sort of unpack oh, it yeah. for your audience, and then do a follow on on that yeah. uh, on undecided with still to be determined. Yeah, it's it's kind of the Venn diagram of like where my interests are falling and where the viewers' interests are falling, and like where those overlap is what I tend to focus on. The research side varies because there are some topics I am very comfortable with and can just dive in pretty quickly. Other times, <laughs> I, have, I have a team of, of researchers that help me. Like, so when we dive deep on a topic, like I'm not a physicist, like somebody else who's here. <laughs> so it's like diving into something like fusion energy, which I have a, I'm fascinated by. I have people I can re- out, reach out to and help me dive into that. Like there's people that work in the industry that act as like 
people that I can bounce ideas off, ask questions to. I kind of have a science, a little science advisory board that I've kind of like work with me now. So I can, I have mechanical engineers and physicists that help me with the show. So like when we put together a script or plumb things together, we can bounce ideas off of each other and see what's the best way to communicate this. What are we missing? Kind of fill in those gaps. So that's kind of like how the, the, the topics come together and trying to make sure that I'm not <laughs> stepping into a kind of a quagmire of like stating something the wrong way. But of course, sometimes things happen and I've, it's been a learning process, which is a part of the reason why I started the podcast, which was kind of a follow-up because sometimes people that watch the videos are way smarter than I am on these topics. And so I get feedback from people that is wonderful. So it's like, I like being able to share what I'm learning along the way in that follow-up podcast. Nice. Nice. By the way, when you reach out to those experts on fusion, do they all tell you to a person that no matter where you are in history, fusion is just 10 years away, really going big? (laughs) Yes. It's always 10 years away. Yeah. Nice. (laughs) Uh, And and Matt, is this uh, is this a full-time thing for you? Are you now? Yes. 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 That that's, that's fantastic. When did you cross that threshold? Was that right from the start or was that, uh, Oh no, uh, along (laughs) along the way? Maybe halfway into the journey, maybe like two and a half years ago or so, I was able to kind of like make this my full-time thing. Yeah. Yeah. Congrats. That is awesome. That is not the case for Sarah and me, but but partly by design. Well, well, you know, when, when we hit it as big as you do with undecided, then maybe we'll make it a (laughs) full-time gig. Sarah, what, what am I, what should I be asking of Matt that I'm not asking? Oh, I don't know that I can come up with anything that you're leaving out. Uh, well, how about how about one that's like, what's maybe either, you know, what what do you wish you had known at the beginning when you started or just what's, oh, you know, what's an interesting lesson that you've learned through throughout this? Oh, man, <laughs> man, that's a good, hard question. I don't know how to answer that one. <laughs> it's like there's so much I've learned over this process. Uh, what I wish I had known beforehand, like when I started this, was I didn't know I was going to go so deep into like the engineering and science behind these topics, but I realized you kind of have to, to give things context. Otherwise it's just kind of meaningless information you're sharing. And so that's where it's like, I don't have a background. I don't have a degree in science. So it's like, I'm, I wish I had known that earlier to kind of loop in more people into the process and to help me to communicate this earlier in the process than I did today. I like that. That's a great answer. I mean, it really speaks to something that I think is interesting to me about, you know, that need for kind of people on the technical and scientific side to work more with people that can communicate to people and and that there's really something there. And it's not something that we do at the end of all of this, but something yeah. that we need to do from the start. Exactly. Yeah. Well, before we, you know, switch chairs, Matt, is there something like an elevator pitch for undecided or still to be determined that, you know, for the the energy versus climate listeners that you want to get them to migrate over to your your channel and your pod? What's your pitch? Well, my pitch would be it's like if you're interested in sustainability and climate change and what you personally can do for your life, I'm covering a lot of what I'm doing in my life to try to make my home more energy efficient, more sustainable things I can do. So it's like, if you're interested in that journey, you should come on over because I'm talking about a lot of the stuff I'm doing in my life right now to try to try to achieve that goal. Nice. Nice. And we really want to get into that and what you're doing in your life. And then Sarah and I, what we've done personally in our lives as well. But first, yeah. So we're now sitting in the interviewee <laughs> together, Sarah and I in the interviewee couch. It's like the Johnny Carson days. I'll be the, uh, what was it? Ed McMahon. And I'll just sort of laugh a lot and, you know, not say anything of substance. So uh, over to you, Matt. All right. So you guys are in the hot seat now. I, I, I'd love to start with Sarah. I have a couple of questions for you. You're a physicist and I'm curious how you had probably a lot of options in front of you being a physicist, like what career choices you could do. What drew you towards energy industry and that kind of area of science? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, part of it you know, something that I've been interested in all along. I can't remember if I shared this before. I need to go grab a copy of it. But I have this book like from my childhood that clearly left a great impression on me called What Makes Everything Go. And it's this like basically a kid's book about energy. And it, it's all about this concept of like, you know, energy is not really, you know, it can't be sort of created out of nothing. And it just so, so there's some sort of piece of that that I guess was there from a very, very early age. And it was always kind of there as I was going through my studies. And, and I ended up going down a totally different route because I got interested in the weirdness of quantum mechanics. But uh, but after that, and deciding that I wanted to do something uh, totally different, I found my way back to the energy industry and just got fascinated by all of the you know hard questions and challenges and and the 
kind of really systems perspective where I thought, hey, there's something that I can bring here from what I know. And so I've been working in the space for, yeah, going on, I guess, a bit over 15, somewhere between 15 and 20 years now. So. Wow. Yeah. So you've been, a, you've been a professor, researcher, and you've been a consultant. What does a day in the life look like for you? For you? Yeah, it's, di- I guess, different in each of those, right? I mean, yeah. now, now as a professor, even that every day, you know, is different, right? Because we do different things. We teach classes. So I just got finished actually uh, with a, a class that I taught on the principles of solar power at the University of Calgary, which was really fun a chance to kind of dive into that topic in a, in a lot of depth. Um, so, you know, I'm do we have classes i'm working with phd students and research assistants on uh, research questions and then you know i spend a lot of my time also finding ways to try to communicate with policymakers and you know with the media and others to because i i'm really passionate about you know making sure that and helping to kind of increase the amount of information within academia and within the research sphere that actually gets out into you know the hands of policymakers and decision makers in a way that they can you know use it to make decisions. And I think that's really, you know, it's not a, to me, it's not better or worse, right? Like basic research is also really important. And there's professors that do that. And that's great. But where I I definitely focus a lot of my time is that connection piece, because it's something that I think, you know, historically hasn't been as important, or hasn't been as valued, I should say, it's always been important, hasn't been as valued within academia. And I think the good news is that that's starting to change. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I think there is a lot more kind of pathways for people like myself and others to, to kind of do that work, which I think is quite important as we wrestle with these, you know, kind of global challenges. It actually raises a question, like in academia, like what's your biggest challenge you're finding between communicating within academia and communicating with the public or the media? Like, where do you think the biggest tension is there? What's the biggest challenge? So there's sort of two ways. I think if you, if you look within the academic sphere, you know, it's sort of really to, to have metrics that capture the work and you know the measure of success of doing that work is is maybe the biggest challenge those are not you know we have a sort of set of traditional metrics we use in academia like you know number of papers published and citations and and that doesn't really translate very well to work that you do you know kind of communication wise on the direct communication piece there you know i definitely had a lot to learn and i think i'm still continuing to learn but i had a lot to learn after my degree and i think that's where you know having been a consultant and worked in the policy space you know, I feel like I went to school a number of times and learned different <laughs> things around how to, you know, communicate both even just as a structure completely differently, right? And and scientists, you know, it's very common that you would start and sort of start with the basic facts and build up the the story and sort of bring people along. And, you know, obviously that's very different when you're trying to communicate a point to, you know, kind of maybe the broader public where you start with the, the answer and then explain, you know, kind of where and how you got there. Um, so there was a lot of learning for me uh, in order to to, yeah, become a better communicator. Ed, on for you, I know you've got a long history being a energy policy consultant as well. Kind of go through a little bit of your background, like how you ended up there, because it's just like with Sarah, it's like, how did you decide to go into energy? Sure, I could say, you know, ditto what Sarah said, minus the physics. Um, <laughs> That's the short answer. <laughs> That's the short answer. Well, no, no, my my path has been a little different, perhaps. Um, I don't know, slightly more circuitous, but Sarah's is as well. And you know, I can touch upon how Sarah and I came to work together years ago. Uh, but I, I'm a public policy guy, and I was working in uh, conservation of wild spaces after I finished my undergrad. So did a lot of uh, activism in uh, my undergrad days around human rights, got into, moved out west, lived in the Canadian Rockies, worked in parks and protected areas uh, in the Rockies here. And living in Banff National Park, which is Canada's oldest national park and one of our largest. It's a beautiful spot. And realized along the way that A, had kind of hit a wall in terms of my career trajectory. So I decided to go out and I had a BA, I jokingly call a bugger all. And then I got an MBA, a master's of bugger all. But within that MBA, I was able to focus both in international business, but then corporate sustainability, and then really sort of dove into clean tech and renewable energy. And when I came out, instead of going back to conservation, I realized that a lot of the issues that I was working on in protection of wild spaces, protection of of, uh, biodiversity was really uh, directly impacted by the energy choices that we made. 
both the, those who produce our energy and those who consume our energy. And then I got a chance to work for this outfit called the Pemmin Institute, which is a national clean energy think tank in Canada. Sarah joined me there sort of 10 years after I started. Uh, she came out of McKinsey and took the steepest salary cut in the history, I think, of the Pemmin Institute, going from a McKinsey salary on the partner track to working for this national environmental NGO. But that was really my master's degree, you could say, after my master's degree. I came in, you know, wet behind the ears, not knowing a lot, but just being thrown into the business and starting first in consulting and then becoming executive director of the organization. Not only did I develop a deep passion for clean, sustainable energy, but I got enough knowledge just to be, I think, dangerous to myself and dangerous to others, and then step into the lucrative world of podcasting. <laughs> I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Sarah. What's a day in a life look like for a consultant doing what you do? Well, it's, it's very exciting. And actually, I, I, I will say a day in the life, what it used to be, there's actually a video kicking around YouTube, not called a day in the life, but two days in the life of Ed Whittingham. And if you're ever having trouble <laughs> sleeping, go search for that, click on it. And not only will the action on screen put you to sleep, but you might find the, the soundtrack very soothing. That's what it used to be like these days. It's, it's doing a lot of this. Uh, frankly, I wish I were actually getting out there and putting up solar panels on people's roofs. But when you work on public policy, you're sitting behind a laptop and you are interacting with decision makers and you're writing briefs and you're doing research and you're communicating, in my case, usually communicating very poorly to try to create that compelling case to put in place the policy and regulatory frameworks that we need to really drive us to net zero. So looking at me, you're seeing me in front of a laptop talking. That's about a day in the life of Ed Whittingham these days. It's about <laughs> as exciting as that. Oh, man. This is obviously, you guys are in Canada, so it's going to be very different than what I am. I assume talking to policymakers here in the United States would be kind of disheartening at times. What's it been like for you guys in Canada? It's What's the receptiveness of the policymakers you're talking to? Like, are, are, they, are they getting it? Is it clicking with them? Well, we're really trying to be as disheartening as the United States. It's kind of like a race, you know, <laughs> that we're trying to win. So, yeah, you don't think we're up here in this utopian, socialist, uh, climate-conscious, uh, northern neighbor country. We've got our own challenges. But, Matt, I mean, it's a little less, I think, than in the United States. Do we actually have to, these days, say that climate change is a thing or make a case for it? But unfortunately, it still falls very much along partisan lines. And although we thought we'd turned a corner just a few years ago with the equivalent of our Republican Party, the Conservative Party of Canada, which has now taken several steps back on being open and receptive to, to progressive climate policy, we kind of felt like we, we took a few steps back and stepped back in time about 10 years. So it still, unfortunately, splits very much along partisan lines. Okay. So you're following the American path. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, following the American path, I guess, just without the same sort of, you know, game of chicken when it comes to, you know, spending limits and budgets and, you know. Yeah. 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 And uh, <laughs> our, our prime minister is a little younger than your president. Maybe that's the other difference. Yeah. Just just a little bit. Yeah. Do, do you want to jump into the, the main topics that we want to talk about? Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. So we want to talk about, we thought we'd just chunk it out between homes and then getting around mobility. So maybe Matt, you know, tell us about your experience in developing a net zero home. Like, you know, when did you start? Where are you at right now? And one or two things you told us about, you know, undecided and still to be determined, but what are sort of big things that you've learned along the way from energy efficiency to appliances, to windows, insulation, just, you know, I, I'm, I'm really narrowing the topic and the focus narrowing it here. down, so making really it very easy it to focus. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you can come up with a yes or no answer. That's fine. <laughs> For me, it started with my current house that I'm in right now having an energy audit on my house, figuring out what I had to do to try to make it better because it's an older house. And by old, by American standards, it was built in the 1950s, very leaky, not great insulation. So getting that kind of upgraded and kind of learning what I had to do that led to me, you know, getting solar panels on my house, which led to me wanting to get a home battery, which led to me wanting to be more energy efficient. It was kind of like a snowball, like rolling downhill. It was just 
like a slippery slope of, okay, well, what's next? Oh, this, oh, I, if I could monitor my energy, I'd know where it's going in my house. So let me get a smart home energy monitor. I can put my electric panel. It just started leading into one thing after another. So it's, it's been like pulling a yard, a little bit of string out of my shirt. And it's just slowly coming unraveling of finding all the things that I can do, which then led to me making a whole bunch of videos about all those different topics, which got me super excited about kind of like walking the walk, talking the talk. What if I built a brand new house that was as energy efficient as I could possibly make it? And that's what my wife and I have been working on for the past two years. The house should be done this summer, but it's going to be a passive house level quality home, really high, like R values for all the insulation, triple pane windows. We're getting a geothermal heating and cooling system put in, solar panels, home battery, the whole the smart panels. We're kind of putting everything into it that I've been talking about on my channel for the past five years. <laughs> so it's kind of like our dream home that we're building for our long-term forever home. So that's kind of been my journey going into this, but it's, it's, it's honestly that slippery slope of once you start with one of these things, it always seems to lead to one other thing. And the one thing I got that started this whole part was my Tesla model three. I got an EV and it was like, I don't have to get gas anymore, but man, it takes a lot of electricity. What can I do to solve that problem? Well, I'll put solar panels on my roof. Oh, well, that's great, but I'm putting all this energy into the grid and I'm not able to take advantage of it. Oh, I need a home battery. So it was just like one of these things just kept unfolding in the next. So that's kind of like why, what I've learned over time and what I'm doing with my house. That's why I'm doing it all. So Matt, you're a cautionary tale that to all the people contemplating yes. the Tesla purchase, you get a Tesla purchase and the slippery stove down careful. to building a whole net zero home. Yes. I hear yeah. the same story from people that watch my videos and comment and I've had conversations with them. And it's the, it's the same thing every time I got an EV. Now I want to get solar panels and I want to get a home battery. It's like, it's the same exact pattern that I see other people going down. So it's, it seems to be pretty common. Yeah. It's Sarah. I know you that have was an EV. actually, uh, that, that was Tesla's pitch right around why they should when they to their investors, when they were buying the solar company, I'm going to get which one it was wrong, which sort of didn't really happen. Right. But they were basically saying like, we could sell people solar in the showroom when we're selling them the EV, I guess. It sounds like they could have done a better job of it, but I don't think that they have. <laughs> yeah. Basically being able to charge your own car off of sunshine is a really compelling sales pitch. It's like, you don't have to buy electricity from the grid. You don't have to use gasoline anymore. You can just charge your car from your own roof. It's a pretty compelling argument. Yeah. I feel like I've approached it the opposite way. My, my gateway drug was frankly uh, rooftop solar. Well, I should, I should take a step back. My gateway drug was that, as you say, getting a, an energy efficiency audit of a house done. And then you get the mm -hmm. itemized list of all the things that you can do. And I started checking them off. And this is, this is much longer ago. And so checking it off and geothermal was around, but it really wasn't commercialized. And I don't think they'd figured out the cold weather performance. So Moria was like, okay, well, you've got an 80% AFUE or annualized fuel uh, utilization efficiency furnace go up to 96%, but it's still gas-based. There's a bunch of air tightness improvements to do and just getting around with a caulking gun and, and the spray foam, changing out a hot water tank. For me, the biggest uh, bang for the buck was attic insulation. Like just putting yep. attic insulation up to R40 was incredible. You know, changing out windows and, you know, up here in Canadian dollars at the time, this is going back, I want to say 13 years and putting in uh, new windows. That was like a six $6,500 Canadian uh, dollar venture. Putting in spraying attic insulation up to R40, I think was 400 bucks and by far the biggest bang for the buck. And what we found, and then I started tracking our household emissions, that I had emissions, my household's emissions, including our travel and flights and whatnot, was uh, about 14 tons per year and then dropped it down to 10 tons. And then after that, dropped it down to just north of eight tons, which is great. So it was nice to the best, to, to the best that I could calculate it using the Peminent Suits plug and chug household emissions calculator. Then I should say the gateway drug was putting in rooftop solar. I haven't done an EV yet, but I've got a four kilowatt system up on my house and it is creating, you know, basically has reduced my uh, electricity consumption. It, well, it produces 113% of our average annual consumption, and then it's reduced our electricity by about 43% over average levels. And that's so 43% pure savings on the electricity charges. But Sarah, I know coming to you, I think your gateway drug was, I'm sure you did some things on your house, EV, and then you put panels up on your roof. Is that right? 
I'm trying to remember the order here. So we we did first the home insulation and windows. So that was the first step. And then the EV came slightly before the solar, but they were at a similar time. But actually before that was the e-bikes and e-cargo bikes. For me, that is like the big, I think, place around which I'm most uh, of an evangelicist or something, uh, both a, both a cargo biking with the electric assist and then actually like cargo trike for the Canadian winters. Like I still think that trikes are a much underappreciated tool for biking when it's uh, icy out and in the snow. Uh, you know, probably they're just not cool, but luckily I'm not worried about that. So, <laughs> so that's okay. Yeah. So that, that's been a big thing for me. Then we went down to, you know, just having one car in the family which has been nice in a lot of ways also from a from a cost savings perspective uh, I did also get a I have a sense energy monitor um, that I got put in pretty early on as well too and that was kind of fun interesting to see I mean I think some of these things are good examples of stuff that's like fun at parties if, I guess if you go to the right kind of parties then you hang around and compare your energy monitor usage um, but I'm not sure if it makes a big difference in terms of you know actual like home performance that one is really more just like oh I'm curious and it's fun to be able to see that um i think more generally like all the things that we're talking about you know it's it's fun to be part of the early adopter crowd and to look for ways to do all of this um but it's really you know gonna have a and i think there's an important role for that but i think then it has the biggest impact when it kind of just becomes a standard thing right that people do um and that's arguably maybe a little bit easier when it comes to something like an EV than than some of the home stuff, um, the home retrofit stuff. There's there's some interesting signs of some of the new home builds, right? There's a big company uh, in Calgary. I know that I've seen signs advertising now solar comes kind of standard with their home. So some of those changes, I think, are starting to happen. And to me, those are where we see, you know, the biggest kind of change. Yeah, I, I had a sense in my house, too, for a long time. And I was like, super, super nerdy. It's like this is great knowledge, but what do I do with this? And it's like, I was having to be very proactive on my se- by myself to take action on certain things, which is when I upgraded to the span electric smart panel, which is like sense on steroids. It's, it's no longer just information. It's, it can actually take action on things. So it's like, if the grid goes out, it, it automatically will create kind of virtual sub panels. So it'll automatically start dropping certain things, turning them off to extend the battery life automatically. I don't have to think about it. I've also tied it into my smart home. So it's like, I'm able to even get more granular than that. Like if there's, I can plug my Tesla in today. And if there's no solar power being generated, it doesn't charge. But when solar Mm -hmm. starts coming into the house, it could charge. So it's like, it allows you to kind of unlock these systems and automations based on how you're interacting with things where sense is just information and it's got those cool little blobs showing you how much energy is being used and you can look at historical usage it it did help me find things like i had a rogue dehumidifier in my basement that was just like running Mm -hmm. i thought i thought it was on a smart plug and i thought it was only running like a couple hours a day but it turned out it was like running basically 24 hours a day and it was using way too much energy and so a sense alerted me to this of like there's a high energy use in your basement i was like what is this and i figured out what it was so it's it it is helpful but it's not like it could have just turned it off on its own where yeah it's more if, like a one time yeah. like finding something that's going on yeah. wrong than necessarily long term although i got my kids like into it and at least i feel like oh they're learning about energy so that's kind of fun yeah <laughs> yeah we did that i mean it so my e-gauge app sounds very clunky by comparison which will show real time solar production and then real-time electricity consumption. And I remember using it and for uh, when I was at Pemina for a work thing. I was in the Persian Gulf. I'm like 12 hours away. And I was cyber-stalking my family using e-gauge. <laughs> and you can see right away, and especially anything, hey, dear homeowner, anything that's got a heating element in it, like a kettle, or if you're running a dryer, anything that has to heat up, use electricity heat up, you can just see it spikes your consumption. So I would cyber snoop and I would say, hey, you know, I think someone left a bedroom light on and, you know, I was having a Skype chat with my family. And uh, then suddenly I'm watching it in real time. I see our consumption go up to unprecedented levels. So what's going on? And of course, they decided to play a prank on me and they turned everything on in the house that they possibly could that drew electricity. And that was a clear message to dad to stop cyber, cyber snooping from halfway around the house, halfway around the world. And uh, so I struggle as well. Like it's great information and it's been a, a useful thing. I will say I've actually, my e-gauge, I'd use that with policymakers. When I've had meetings in a provincial capital like Edmonton or have gone to Ottawa 
and talking about solar, I'll say, hey, you want to see something neat? Pull up the app right there and just show them. And it's essentially a show and tell piece. But then that gives me a hook to talk about some of the incentives, whether they be provincial or federal or, or municipal, that allowed a homeowner like me to look at a solar system that took out some of the cost risk and sort of you know took down the payback on it by you know whatever it was five or ten years. Matt, on solar in particular, are you tapping into some sort of state level or municipal level incentive program, or is that is not yes? It's not not has that not figured into your decision? Oh, it, I am taking advantage of it. It didn't impact my decision of wanting to get solar. I wanted to get solar, whatever incentive was available. But here in Massachusetts, there's a program called Connected Solutions that it's really kind of cool. Um, not only is there like net metering and different kinds of systems in place like that, but my home battery can participate as a virtual power plant. So all the hundreds of other homes that are participating in this act as one gigantic battery for the grid. And so during the summertime, there's a period of like four months where my utility can take advantage of that virtual power plant to do peak shaving, which is just so cool. I love the fact I'm participating in this thing that's helping the community, but it saves the utility a lot of money because they don't have to spin up peaker plants for those times in the afternoon where everybody comes home from work and is turn on the air conditioning and cooking their dinners. So my, I'm putting in, I can't remember how many kilowatts I put in last season, but then they cut you a small check at the end of the season based on how many kilowatts on average that you put into the program, they'll pay it back. And so batteries are very expensive. It's like, you know, $15,000 to get a single power wall installed. So if you're over the course of a five years of this program, if you're earning back five, six, $7,000, that's a nice chunk taken right off of the top of that battery cost to make it a little more worth your while. It's like, I, I want programs like this to be everywhere, but unfortunately they're not, not yet. Yeah. And that, I mean, I, I don't know your take, Sarah, but it seems that any kind of incentive around battery storage or even at the utility scale energy storage, that's kind of the next frontier that's, you know, now we've got some federal funding for it in Canada through a large federal program that just got massively recapitalized in our last budget. In our last budget, Matt, it was like the Canadian response to IRA, you know, hmm. like how do we keep clean tech, clean energy capital in Canada and not drift down to the United States because of how lucrative, ludicrously lucrative the incentives are? then we tried to keep pace. And now there's some money for energy storage, but still, you know, at the utilities commission level or the electricity system operator level on the utility scale, people are still trying to wrap their heads around it, how we have these non-wire solutions. You don't have to just put in more transmission. And that's actually just on a broader scale, one of the things getting in the way of, you know, increased deployment or penetration of renewable electricity in a place like where Sarah and I live is this, oh, well, if we do that, we have to put in more transmission. Well, battery storage is literally a non-wire solution, but we're still trying mm -hmm. to educate and change hearts and minds around that. <laughs> well, one question came up, like we all talked about getting energy audits on our homes, which I thought is really cool. What would you guys think for where a homeowner should start? Because there's so much we can do. Like, where should somebody start that's just getting into this? Two, so two two things I'd offer. So I think one is, you know, the insulation one is a big one. And I know it's not so exciting, right? You don't get to point to, like, your shiny EV or the, you know, solar panels on your roof. But as Ed was saying, it's often the biggest bang for the buck. So, you know, looking at what options do you have to to just increase the amount of insulation uh, around your home. And, and that can be with an energy audit. And often there are programs that help actually support the cost of that, too. The other one I'll come back to my, you know, if, what I like to evangelize about around transportation and, and thinking about, you know, are there ways that you can start to replace car trips with something else, right? And obviously, that depends a lot on where you are, whether that's public transit or walking or cycling. But when I, you know, when I really started to replace a lot more of my car trips with a bike, I really just had, it was sort of like a week, I set myself a challenge. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, unless I really, you know, it's over an hour or something like that, I'm just going to take the bike instead of the car and like, just going to do it. And I found that there were actually a lot of things that I could do that, you know, I could replace with a, with biking. And, and that can be easier, you know, if you're in a place where you can rent, get a short-term rental of a cargo bike, if you're, you know, someone that's carrying kids or, um, you know, big grocery uh, hauls home, often, you, you know, you can use trailers or things like that, but really just kind of trying it out and seeing if it fits into your, into your life, I think is a big step towards then finding out that, Hey, maybe this does actually, not only does it, you know, good from an energy perspective, but I found I'm a lot happier when I get outside and I get to spend, you know, my commuting time, even if it's a little bit longer on a bike versus stuck in traffic. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd say plus one for an e-bike. And our story is in 2005, and we're on the cusp of having our second kid. We got, whereas when I was living in Banff, Alberta and Canada, we got as far as we can tell the first e-bike that anyone owned in in Banff amongst uh, any resident. And we did that. And at the time we had to retrofit my wife's bike, her townie bike. We put an extender bike on the back. We put like this massive lead acid battery on the back <laughs> with a brushless motor on the front and then a throttle and a controller. And next thing you know, we managed to get the torque right so that she could boot up the hill. We lived up a hill with her cargo bike and with two kids sitting on the back on the extender bike as well. Uh, and, <laughs> and that just changed things for us. And for a long time, we had one car. Kids got a little older. We had two cars. We were shuttling them around. And now we're back to a one-car household and very happy with that. One sort of comment on the one-car household, we're, we're able to do that because of the behavioral changes that we've made. So post-COVID, frankly, it's been wonderful. We're sitting here and we're, you're in Massachusetts, Sarah's in Calgary, I'm here in Canmore. Uh, we're talking to each other through video conferencing. As I say, you know, a very unexciting day in my life is doing a lot of this, talking from home and working out of a home office, which because I'm able to do that, cuts down on our need to get around through any kind of vehicle, whether it's EV or internal combustion engine. And I can go an entire week it's, it's it's a regular thing without getting behind the wheel of the, the sole remaining vehicle that we have. I will say on the, your question around energy audits, Matt, I think it's a good starting point. But I, I do caution people when you get your report back, it'll have like 10 things that you can do. And the first five <laughs> things will be really expensive and they'll seem like big capital projects. And don't be intimidated by that. To Sarah's point, there are little things that you can knock off on that list. That costs a lot less. And just because your energy auditor ranked at number seven or eight on your list, like just pick one and then just get into it. And then you'll find that the others will come much more easily, kind of like your your slippery slope story, Matt. Yeah, Yeah. that's great advice. It's kind of what happened to me. I got this list of like, oh my God, there's so much on here to do. And it was like, okay, let's start with the ones that are kind of the cheapest, easiest to do. And then in Massachusetts, there's something called Mass Save here, which is a program that actually helps you cover the cost of the energy audit. They even help cover the cost of getting reinsulation. So we upgraded our insulation in our attic through the program that helped cover some of that cost. So it's like it may not be as expensive as you might think, depending on where you live and what programs are available. And and I wanted to do a plus one to the e-bike. I've got one too. I I love that thing. <laughs> it's so much fun. And I've been talking to my wife about trying to get down to a one car household because we both work from home now. Mm-hmm. It's like we have two cars sitting in our driveway. It's like I barely drive. <laughs> she barely drives. We don't need two cars. So I'm trying to get down to that point where we're maybe a couple bikes, one car for those those trips where we need a car. It's, it's, that seems like a kind of a no brainer for a lot of people. If you work a job where you can do more kind of remote work, which a lot of people seem to be able to do today. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Matt, I've got a question for you and and maybe we could almost wrap with this topic. Sarah and I, uh, and David Keith, our other co-host, we had Hal Harvey and Justin Gillis on right at the beginning of season four of our podcast, energy versus climate, energy versus climate.com. We will do a proper plug before we ring off. And they talked about the difference between being like a green consumer versus a green citizen. And what they said is, yeah, you know, the things that we talked about, that's all important and and we should do that. But let's not forget being a green citizen. And that might involve showing up in front of your local electricity utility board, or it might mean going to your town council next time that they're doing a review of building codes. Maybe just give us your thought or experiences with how you allocate your time and your energy and your passion between you know, what you're doing in your house, but then kind of these, 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 these broader, you know, citizen action type things that we could do. Yeah. It's like, that's a good example of like, right now I'm starting to get more active in my local policy stuff. I haven't done that historically, but I'm starting to do that more now. Once again, walking the walk, talking the talk where I'm building my new house. I've actually been attending virtually the town meetings. Um, they're talking about community solar projects. I'm starting to try to get involved in that kind of thing myself. So it's like, I want to try to help steer what's happening in my community. And that's something super easy to do that everybody that cares about this stuff should do. It's, it's, it's beyond simple to find out where your local town meetings are being held. Most of them do it virtually now. So it's really easy to attend. 
that's one thing I'm doing right now. It, it kind of like, based on what I'm doing on the channel, I also look at what I'm doing on the channel as kind of advocacy. It's like, I'm, I'm talking about my experience with solar panels. I'm talking about my experience with geothermal in the new house. It's like, I'm trying to also kind of just kind of advocate to the public about this stuff isn't as scary as you think. It's not as hard as you think and look at the benefits you can get from it. So I kind of look at that as another arm of what I'm trying to do. Yeah, and I think you do that very well. And based on the the followers you have, I mean, the downloads <laughs> you get with the pod and the followers, you're what, uh, if I get the number right, it's 1.9 million, like some staggering number it's, like it's, that of people who are subscribing to your YouTube channel. Yeah, it's 1.2 million right now. 1.2 million. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, just 1.2. <laughs> I still got a ways to go. <laughs> Only 1.2 million. Oh, I don't know, Sarah, why we're even talking to Matt Farrell on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Hey, why don't we, we're our own energy gang. Just about to say, hey, gang, we're kind of like the energy gang today. Why don't we, why don't we leave it at that? Matt, maybe where can people find you? Find uh, the Still To Be Determined podcast and Undecided. If you want to listen to Still Be Determined, go to stilltbd.fm and you can find the links to all the places online. We're in pretty much every podcast player you can imagine. So just look us up as Still TBD podcast. You can find us pretty much everywhere and on YouTube as well. Awesome. Sarah, where can people find Energy Versus Climate? You can find Energy Versus Climate at energyversusclimate.com or also in all the places you find podcasts. And if you're looking for a group of people, you know, going pretty deep into the weeds on specific topics within the energy and climate space down into the yeah weedy, weedy policy and uh, technology area, then I think you'll enjoy it. We also try, you know, to really confront some of the challenges that arise and the difficulties and, and just the, I think we, we like to say the reality of the challenges that come from when energy and climate collide and being here in you know, what is the oil capital of, uh, of Canada doing so, you know, grounded in the, the real challenges and, and the real impact that it has on people's lives. So we may be up in Canada, but we like to think that, uh, you know, it's, it's very relevant for people all across uh, North America and all across the world. Yes, I'm channeling my inner Dan Carlin and I'm saying, Frank, no BS conversation about the hard truths and trade-offs <laughs> of energy transition, energy versus climate. <laughs> hey, this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Matt. We're, thank, Sarah and thank I, you. Uh, if I can speak for you, Sarah, I think we're really grateful that uh, you joined us today. This was a lot of fun. I'm so glad we connected and got to do this. Cool. Let's do it again. All right. Thanks, everyone. Definitely. Our thanks to Sarah and Ed for taking the time to talk to Matt and share their insights. And it's too bad that David wasn't available for the call as well. Perhaps you'll get an opportunity to talk to him yeah. in the future. I hope so. If you'd like to learn more about them and their podcast, on energy policy, go to www.energyversusclimate. That's energyvsclimate.com. As usual, I'd like to invite everybody who's listening to jump into the comments. Let us know what you thought about the conversation and put in any comments that you think that would invite future conversations between Matt and his guests. If he's able to revisit It'd be interesting for you to share your comments and insights that he might take with him for that second conversation. As always, we appreciate your taking the time to listen or watch us on YouTube. Please, if you have the time and the wherewithal to support us, go back to wherever it was you listened to us. Go back to where it was you found us. Leave a review. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends. All of those are great ways to support us. And if you'd like to more directly support us, you can click the join button on YouTube. You can also go to stilltbd.fm, click the become a supporter button. It allows you to throw quarters at our heads. We appreciate the indentations. I've got a George Washington right about here. <laughs> Those wounds heal and the podcast gets made and we are appreciative. Thank you so much everybody for listening or watching. We'll talk to you next time.